0: Hello and welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us uh, today. Today we're going to be um, talking uh, about carbon neutrality and the uh, environment uh, as it uh, pertains to mining companies and the importance thereof. Uh, We're joined today by 3 people in the know. We've got Catherine Stretch, Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Troilus Gold uh, over in Quebec, Canada. Uh, We've got Alex um, Pernan, he is the CEO of Greenstar Royalties. and We've also got Oliver Turner, Executive Vice President of Corporate Development at Carora resources. Hello, everyone. How are you? Hi, Matt. Good, good, good. Why don't we start off? uh, Each of you just introduce yourselves, if you don't mind, uh, to everyone, and then I'm going to launch into some questions, if I may. Catherine, can you kick us off?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Catherine Stretch. I'm the VP Corporate Affairs at Troilus Gold Corp. Um, So, part of my responsibility is overseeing our implementation of ESG policies at Troilus. Um, We are an exploration and development stage company. We're working on the restart of the Troilus mine, which is in Northern Quebec. Um, But we think this is a really interesting time for us to um, take advantage of all the new technologies and new thinking and incorporate carbon neutral policies um, into our redevelopment of the Troilus mine.
2: Alex Brennan, CEO of Star Royalties. We're a royalty and streaming company, and we're unique in that we invest in both precious metals and carbon offset projects. Green Star is our pure green subsidiary where we originate opportunities meaning that our funding is what creates these carbon credits, and we originate them in the top jurisdictions, being Canada and the U.S. We've had two major developments recently. The first was a strategic investment by Nico Eagle, who's not only a senior gold miner, but a global ESG leader. And the second was a fourfold expansion of our flagship regenerative agriculture carbon program.
3: Okay, and uh, my name is Oliver Turner, the Executive Vice President of Coral Resources. We're a gold producer focused in Western Australia, where we're expanding gold production from roughly 100,000 ounces to 200,000 ounces by 2024. And very importantly, we are also one of the leading uh, junior producers in the gold space with respect to carbon neutrality. We've partnered with a company called Invert Inc. that's helped us address our, our carbon footprint. And we are developing a path towards net zero emissions over the course of this year and next, which we'll be happy to update people on.
0: Fantastic, thanks, thanks, guys. Um, look, I was originally going to make this whole panel session around answering the question: You know, why is carbon neutrality important to money, right? But I saw this piece by a CEO, a slightly frustrated CEO, on social media, going, "We've spent an ex- exorbitant amount of money and time and effort putting together an ESG plan and uh, to include, you know, carbon neutrality, net zero carbon. We issued the report, not a flicker in the market." He was super irritated, it seems. Um, why bother going through the pain of doing this if the market's not going to react, Catherine?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's more of a longer-term thinking um, that, that you need that approach uh, from senior management, from the board of directors on down. In, in our case with Troilus, you know, we are um, working on restarting the mine. The mine operated for 14-years. Things have changed since it shut down in 2010. So as we look ahead, and we're working on the pre-feasibility now, it's coming out targeted for the middle of this year. We can start to incorporate um, steps into the design um, that will help us implement carbon neutrality. And that will have a long-term impact on the operation of the mine. So it's, it's not just right now. It's not just looking for a blip on the market right now. We're looking ahead for... Potentially decades, and how this will impact not only our shareholders but the stakeholders in the region. How the land gets used—all of these things um, will change the outcome for our investors. We think over the long term and, and make it a more attractive investment opportunity as well.
0: And obviously, what's, what's your take on what Catherine said there? I mean, given given you're, in the, you're in the business of um, you know carbon credit pricing and carbon offsets,
2: uh, I completely agree. I mean, this is something that we speak about every single day, mostly all day, 75% of our meetings, 80% of our meetings are are carbon credits, carbon offsets. We get asked all the time, why carbon neutrality for companies and for investors? I think the reality is it's a combination of the environmental side and the finance side. And Matt, we've spoken about this in the past from the environmental side, I, I hope that people recognize the importance of avoiding climate catastrophe and we're seeing it now, it's personal. Right, where you're dealing with forest fires, uncontrollable forest fires, you're dealing with record heat waves every single year, you're dealing with um, 100-year flood events that are happening on an annual basis, so people want to prevent this from, from getting worse. Uh, in terms of the financial component, from the company side, we've always spoken about cost of capital, Right, getting access to capital at the end of the day, if you're a public company, you're competing with other public companies to access capital. If there's only so much capital in the market and you're trying to compete with them, you want to be relevant, you want to track the investors, you want to score well on ESG scorecards because now there are mandates from investors that can only invest in ESG. So, you know, I, I can appreciate the frustration of that, that CEO, but it's a long-term play. You know, if you look at it from an investor's point of view it's a mainstream topic. Um, A couple of years ago, we weren't really focused on ESG to the level that we are now, back then it was also called CSR. Um, But you think of what's happened in the last couple of years, we've had COVID and COVID has been an exercise of identifying quantifying and minimizing risk and climate is equally uh, an issue. Now there's, a, there's an entire exercise that's going on with the SEC and we can talk about that later on, but the SEC is now requiring climate disclosures and they want to be consistent. They want to have fair, verified information. It's all about, uh, Understanding that the risk of climate change, your your GHG or your your greenhouse gas footprint, how you're going to address that. This is something that everybody's talking about, and it's becoming a requirement. So um, it's it's the right move for that company going forward.
0: Okay, so you've got ESG. You talked about CSR uh, in in the past, but you um, but you've was, you've also talked about SEC. You know, maybe stepping things up and talking about climate disclosures. Is it the same as it used to be? Is ESG just a rebranding of what went before? What do you reckon, Oliver?
3: No, not at all. Um, I think it's been uh, cranked up the notch. And, and what I would say, you know, first and foremost, I, I completely agree with Alex's statements. You know, the, the evidence is now irrefutable in terms of the impacts of climate change, um, and the risks to businesses in terms of their, you know, their future uh, you know, profitability is, are, are enormous. So, irrespective of whether you you believe in that narrative or not, you need to be addressing this. Now, from the investor standpoint when we kicked off our journey at Corora mid last year, um, there was a very large US institution that began their work upon that announcement. So this is, you know, to Catherine's point, this is a long-term game. This is something that takes out and plays out over time. Um, All of our work on the ESG front culminated in the issuance of our inaugural ESG report, which we put out just two weeks ago, which was, you know, fantastic uh, group effort and the first time ever in this company and sort of a big sign of our maturity. But a lot of the work that went into that, we were there with funds over the course of last, Nine months, helping them understand our business from an ESG perspective and from a future uh, risk perspective with respect to the impacts of, of climate change on our business. So that did translate into two major new buyers. So the so the point of what you're just talking about with the CEO, you're 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 addressing. Um, They need to then take that work that's been done, get out there, talk to these funds, Salates' point, walk them through the ESG rating mechanism, get them more familiar with the business. uh, business. And then when we start to think of the world of mining versus the generalist investor capital out there, it completely dwarfs what we've seen in resource funds. So these, these funds do have the capability to make very large investments but they take a long time to do their due diligence and they need to make sure that you have a long-term plan in place. So it can translate, but you just need to use that information the right way and make sure that you walk through investors through your process.
0: Okay, so that's a real-world example of, of a financial benefit I think something something Alex um, alluded to as well. But Catherine, retail investors, they don't have that kind of view. They don't have the patience, it seems. Um, what's, what's the pushback that you're getting and what would you say to those people?
1: I mean, I, I don't think we're getting any pushback right now. Obviously, you know, we need to be thinking ahead towards the costs involved in um, building the trellis mine. Um, we are, we're concerned about the capex, the opex, as we build the economic model. And we want to make sure that it will work over the long term. But for us, you know, we, we have, I think, a competitive advantage in that. Uh, although we're in northern Quebec, we're in an isolated region, we are actually connected to, the hydro grid um, to Hydro-Quebec. And, and so that gives us access to renewable power. So right away, we're a step ahead. It, it, I think it puts us um, at a unique advantage compared to some of our peers that, are, that may be at the same point and may not have access to the same sorts of uh, renewable energy. So we've got that already. We're, we're starting ahead of the pack. So now we thought, okay, well, let's let's take a look at what, how else we're using um, energy on site, and and what can we do. So we we're using energy in vehicles, we're using energy in drilling, we use ele- uh, energy um, electricity um, in the camp. How can we, as we expand and as we move into construction and then production, how can we incorporate um, means of new technologies that reduce our GHG emissions and where we can't reduce the emissions, then look at offsets as an alternative. So we are working with Hydro-Quebec right now. We've got a a substation on site, 50 megawatts. um, We have enough capacity to power the future operation. Um, But if we start putting in new things, electric vehicles, we need stations to charge the electric vehicles. All these things are important um, design aspects that we can include right now. Um, that that will have an impact and will make it more attractive to investors over time.
0: Well, let me stick with you, Catherine, okay? Because I want to try. I want to try and understand again as it comes to my comment. set, but another CEO is basically saying, look, this stuff's been around for a while. If you do good, you do good, and it's kind of horses for courses. There's no kind of standard footprint or or template that you can follow. So, do you have to, in some way, you know, map your own course?
1: I, I do think so, yes. I mean, this is this is a big controversy, and and, and um, both of uh, Alex and Oliver, I think, have, have touched on it. There was a, a, a fairly lengthy article in the Globe and Mail in Toronto this weekend about the, the lack of kind of standardization of reporting. Um, so for a small company like us, you know, we look at the landscape and we look at all these different reporting standards and think, oh, how, how are we going to do this? So th- there are various platforms and, and, and means um but we have to do what makes sense for us. We, we can't do everything right now. It's, it's just not possible. Um, so we have to do what we think is right. We have to think of, watch the trends, watch what other people are doing. How can we incorporate this into how we are doing our business? But I do think, That we will see more of a regulatory push. That we will start to see it come down from governments. We are already seeing, starting to see it from the financial regulators. So to be ahead of that curve a little bit, I think is important for a company like ours.
0: Okay, and and uh, you know, um, Alex, if I look look at you, it's a fairly nascent industry. The the space that you're playing in, Um, people are starting to, you know, that well, we're hearing, you know, about carbon offset credits and you know, and, and. Net zero and all of those wonderful phrases people aren't quite sure what all of the above means. But how, do, how does a company like you, you know, play that straight? Because there will be people taking advantage of this. So, what, what, what does good look like?
2: Yeah, that's very right, Matt. So. Look, good looks like getting involved with the best projects out there. And we've spoken about carbon credits in the past. Uh, The point of carbon credits is to voluntarily or sometimes actually on a mandatory basis, because there are those two markets. There's the compliance market that we've spoken about in Europe. We have a carbon tax here in Canada. So the companies that fall under that mandate, well, they are regulated by the government to offset their emissions. So if we actually go back to the original question of um, why do you have to do this? Sometimes you have no choice. You're forced to do this. But if you talk about it from a voluntary basis, you know the the line is getting blurred between compliance and voluntary. When you're pressured by BlackRock and Vanek and the retail investor and the 20-year-old investor that that wants to support you, that's environmentally friendly, is it really that much of a voluntary situation? You know, you're almost pressured to do it. So um, I, I think this whole voluntary mechanism is something that goes away later on. But in case of what we do, the whole point of carbon credits is to purchase them to offset your emissions. And like I said, you can do it voluntarily. You don't have to do it voluntarily. Sometimes you have to, but buying credits is is a relatively easy thing. Um, It's something that you should do. It's in your green toolbox, you know, kudos to Oliver that that they've already done that in 2021. So it's something that you should be doing, but what we want to do is we want to take it one step further. We don't want to just be involved in, in existing credits. We want to originate them. And We've talked, uh, we've spoken about originating before. We want to bring in capital, and that's what this IGNECO Legal Partnership is all about. We want to bring in capital, and we want to originate the best quality deals and the best jurisdictions um, with the best types of opportunities. There are different types of opportunities that generate credits. We have been focused on nature-based solutions, Uh, And we can get into the details as to why we think nature-based is is the right way to go. But at the end of the day, it's a combination of everything. You know, There are credits that are involved with carbon removal, which are what nature-based means. You're removing carbon out of the atmosphere. There are also carbon avoidance um, technologies like renewable or electrification that prevents emissions. You need both. And we can talk about analogies of both. But we're involved in... The nature-based programs, we're we're dealing with First Nations and Indigenous communities in Canada with their conservation of forest efforts. That's gone very well from an ESG's perspective, especially from the E and the S component of ESG. Uh, We're dealing with agriculture in the US. You look at the US, half of the surface area in the US is for agriculture. 10% of American emissions are agriculture-related, which is all of what Canada emits. We're talking Six seven hundred uh, million tons of CO two. So we want to get involved. We want to fund projects that are environmentally beneficial to the world that generate these credits and can be used for the companies on this panel, uh, for the ignicos and for for the rest of the industry.
0: Right. Okay. Again, just just a lot. We've had a lot of questions sent in about this. People are fascinated by this area because because they they struggle to understand what good looks like, and what bad looks like. Because you see scenarios where, you know. Cu- carbon offset companies, they go and buy up or option, or lease a chunk of the rainforest somewhere and go, right. That is worth X dollars, right? A forest which was already there, trees which were already doing a job. You're, you're talking about regeneration, reforestation. Uh, I like that in the agriculture comment. I, I kind of like that. But you know what I mean? You can sort of see why there's a degree of skepticism. You can see why activists are slightly nervous about how this thing plays out, what real looks like, what its synthetic version looks like. I mean, is that something that you're coming up against in terms of questions you get, whether it be for institutions or retail?
2: It's a fair question. And we're spending most of our time educating, educating large institutional clients, educating companies like Agnico. That was a a fairly long process to educate them to build that that comfort to really understand what they want to do with their strategy. And that's still in formulation mode. But the easy way to answer that is something called additionality. The project itself, would it have existed if it weren't for the carbon credit? So if you look at what we're doing with regenerative agriculture, if we're not funding these farmers to transition to a more sustainable way of farming, well then there are no carbon credits. That's the whole business model. When you're dealing with First Nations or indigenous communities, like what we have in Ontario and in Alberta, you know, they they heavily rely on their forestry assets for income. You know, they log these assets. These are logging operations they clear cut them for income. Um, and what we're doing is we are convincing them to actually conserve these forests and generate more revenue from the generation of these credits by conserving their forests and clear cutting them. That's additional. If we're not coming in to support that, there is no conservation, there are no carbon credits. There's obviously pushback in some of the examples that you're explaining, you know, the rainforest in Brazil, and that's just an example. they are excellent projects there too, um, but you can't conserve a, a provincial park. You know, We have Algonquin Park here in, in Ontario. It's a beautiful natural provincial park. Uh, you can't go and generate credits from something like that. So you really need to understand who is involved here. And we've spoken about that in the past as well. Who's developing the project? Is it a tier one developer? Is it a company that's done this before? Do they only have one project that they've developed? Uh, you might be questioning that. Do they have 200 projects like Blue Source, our Partner? Okay, then you're comfortable. That's kind of like the Barrick or the Newmont. Who's verifying all of this? Who's actually auditing this work? Is anybody actually auditing this work? And those are registries. And we've spoken about that in the past as well. You want to see these lead players getting involved. And now we're bringing in Agnico. Like so further endorsement of what we're doing, further validation of the business model. You want to see the big brand names involved. If you don't see that, it doesn't mean that the project is not good quality but you want to do some more digging to really understand what they're doing.
0: Do you buy that, Oliver?
3: Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and, and one of the you know, key points that Alex touched on there in terms of additionality is, is important. Um, permanence is important. Durability of these credits is important too. So one of the um, things that w- you know, we wanted to do at CORE for sure was um, make sure that we're approaching our offset selection uh, with the right manner and with the right group, which is what we did with Invert. But also just to take this a step back, um, you know, we, we realize you got to take a dual track approach, right? So as a mining company, we are a large emitter Um, We're also a very necessary part of this whole solution in terms of electrification of the world and solving the uh, the ambitious climate targets that we have or achieving them rather. So what we wanted to do was engage with a group that was able to do two things for us. Number one, help us design a decarbonization pathway. So that's using several of the technologies. Catherine touched on some with with her project there in Quebec. Um, We are evaluating those right now. So at Higginsville, which is in Western Australia, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the story, it's a um, a diesel-generated power solution. So we literally have diesel gen sets right on site there. It's a remote mine. Um, And that's an obvious target for us to reduce our our greenhouse gas emissions. So we're looking at a a variety of hybrid power solutions there, a mix of renewables, uh, gas. So that's a project we're we're looking at right now. Um, We're in the middle of a a very large expansion. So we're looking at uh, fleet replacement with electric vehicles. There are not 60 tonne underground trucks yet. They're in development right now. Sorry, 60 tonne electric underground trucks yet. They're in development right now, and we're working very closely with OEM and developing those, but that's going to be part of our future plan with fleet replacements. So we're also looking at fuel switching. So we're looking at a variety of technologies and approaches to first and foremost reduce what we're actually emitting as we produce our product. And then for what is called residual emissions that we cannot uh, uh, reduce via technology, we're looking for a long-term solution with with carbon credit projects like what Alex is working on. So our first um, swing at this last year, we invested in some projects, particularly one called the Mount Sandy project, um, which was very important to Corora and its stakeholders. We all remember 2019, Alex uh, mentioned the bushfires at the beginning of this call, uh, like Australia was on fire for, for months in 2019 literally the entire island nation was on fire and so what we invested in there was a was a conservation and reforestation project there that was also focused on restoration of of biodiversity so one of the cool things about a lot of these credits is um, you want to check for the you know additionality you want to check for permanence and and durability um, but they also have a lot of ancillary benefits so for us it was restoration of biodiversity if you invest in projects around the world a lot of them can have really fantastic impacts on the local communities as well in terms of labor gender equality. So a lot of knock on benefits that come under the category of the United Nations sustainability development goals. So careful selection of your carbon credit projects, we're going to continue it again this year, we'll continue again moving forward. And our strategy is going to be as these reduction technologies take hold, we will be offsetting less and less, but we need to be thinking and if I sort of put a different hat on here, and think about a financial risk standpoint here, we need to be incorporating a price of carbon into our business moving forward, right? This is not going away. Catherine mentioned, you know, more regulatory pressure coming down the pipeline. She's absolutely right. Um, You know, Alex mentioned compliance versus voluntary. This is all going to become compliance-based. So if I'm a CFO and our CFO is looking at this right now, How do I ensure that my carbon price in the future is is somewhat hedged, just like an input cost like we have in mining? So approaching this holistically and looking at these long-term credit opportunities, long-term project generation at the same time as reducing your carbon footprint is being a sound financial planner. Um, It's what investors want to see. It's quite frankly what we need to do with respect to the whole global situation. And you have this really cool knock-on benefits of being able to have a really Important impact in the areas in which you operate, which is what we're doing as well.
0: Okay, so you mentioned the word um, okay, compliance, regulation. I think you, you, all, you all have, and um, that's been driven by your desire to uh, appease the uh, ESG uh, badged funds. That's been driven by activists, NGOs around the world. So, Catherine, what's the role of activism in this? Is it welcome? I don't think
1: so. I mean, there's a voice for everybody at the table there has to be you know we're we're at a point at in troilus right now where we're starting our um permitting process so we've we've started some of our pre-consultations so it's very interesting everybody has a seat at the table our first nations partners uh, the local communities ngos government um, you want to hear everybody's concerns and, and and you see things from a different perspective so i think it's important for them to be there Um, It it can be a challenge sometimes for for smaller companies to try and stay on top of those type of things. I I know last year one of the big um, French funds sent out uh, an ESG survey to all their investee companies, um, which which touched on various things such as compensation and um, GHG emissions, uh, various governance issues. And, and it was a bit difficult for, for some of the smaller companies to kind of gather this information. So I, I think we need to shift our perspective, think that, that, you know, this is necessary. We need to be doing this. We need to be monitoring it. Um, and we need to be open to um, the input from external parties. They're, they're all stakeholders. I think, you know, one of the things um, we fight against is that, that mining does have a very negative in, image in, in general. People think it's a big polluter. It's... Caused a lot of environmental damage. I I do think um, that that has really shifted over the past 10 years. I I think mining companies have become a lot more forward thinking um, about their impact on the environment, about their long term impact on communities, um, the the kind of traces they leave behind once the mine is gone. We see that the major mining, major producers, I think all have. targets for uh, carbon neutrality by 2050 at this point and some people find that surprising even within the industry you know I I was speaking with some of our our team and and we were talking about well well the big companies are doing this and it was a bit of a surprise to people even within the mining industry so it's sort of a situation where everybody needs to be on board it's not just me, as the person who looks after ESG in the company, the CEO, the board of directors, uh, the, the engineers, the geologists, everybody needs to have the same mindset that we need to be thinking this way. And it's, it's not just for our investors, it's not just for our stakeholders, it's, it's for everybody in the community um, who would be impacted by this yeah. over the long term.
0: But we talked about, you know, a horses for courses approach this because not everyone's in the same location, doesn't have the same physical or geological uh, setup. You've got a lot of hydro in, in, in Quebec. You've, you've got a lot of support from various bodies and departments in, in the Quebec government too. So being judged using the same um, template for a small company can be frustrating. It can be costly. Um, so, how do you push back against some of these activists? Should you be pushing back, or should you be welcoming their voice?
1: I mean, for us, it, it hasn't it hasn't been a major issue as as yet. I mean, we we engage regularly um, with the government and with the First Nations. Um, it is a big focus for us. Um, we have a very supportive uh, local community. Um, they do want to see us develop the mine, um, and and they provide us with a lot of feedback and input, um, so it, it hasn't been a challenge for us so far.
0: Okay. Alex, what's, what's your take on activism? Welcome. Yeah, or not. I think, uh,
2: Catherine's completely right. I agree with everything she's saying. Activism is is a positive if it's done in a productive way, right? And you got to be able to work and understand what the ask is and make sure that it's a reasonable ask. Now, if we talk about these 2050 targets, for example, that's really the next generation's problem. And what we're trying to do here is bring that 2050 target to this decade, maybe 2025 and work with those types of groups, the Ignicos of the world to make that reality. Um, But look, we're talking about the next generation. We have to listen to who that is. When we're talking about activism, a, an easy example that I like to use. You know, when I graduated university, I, I was I'm a geologist by training. Out of ten students, uh, six of us went in mining, maybe two in in oil and gas, and then two in academia. Just before COVID, I went to the mining hall of fame. I was invited by the university. I sat at that table. Every single student was studying environment. That's everybody's focus, right? That generation. So we need to keep in mind who we're talking to, who that audience is. We, we talk about retail investors. Many of our retail investors are, it's a younger audience. And the reality is that audience is who's going to be moving into money management in the future. So, you know, I think it all plays together. Uh, I also think it's worthwhile talking about what carbon neutrality in 2050 actually means, right? So, if you go back 30 years ago in 1990, as a planet, we were emitting about 36 gigatons or 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, so all the greenhouse gases. So, we went from 36 gigatons to now, 30 years later, we're north of 50 gigatons. So, that's a 40 plus percent increase in the last 30 years. And now that we're comfortable with how we live, in the next 30 years, we have to take that 50 plus to zero. There's a lot to do, right? And in Canada, we just had our 2022 budget that came out. It talks about how. Uh, as a nation we have to spend 125 to 140 billion dollars a year every year to actually meet these 2050 targets let alone bring them forward and out of the 125 to 140 billion 100 billion is missing you know that's not accounted for so uh, there's a lot of work to do right if you think of it from an even bigger scale uh, mckenzie had this wonderful report that came out at the beginning of the year and it spoke about what it would take at a global level. We're talking over $9 trillion US to reach net zero. Um, And the reality is, going back to this whole next generation problem, it costs more uh, to do nothing than to deal with this now and deal with the repercussions later on. So that's the reality. And that's why listening to that activism is a smart thing to do to make sure that we're in a decent position in 30 years from now.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. And one thing I would add on top of that as well is just the fact that a lot of the the opportunities that we have today didn't necessarily make as much sense 15 years ago. So, you know, from, from a cost perspective, a lot of technologies had advanced to the point where it is actually cheaper and, and more efficient to build a solar farm next year operation than it is to, you know, throw up an site power generation with, the, with diesel, right? So um, while, you know, activism, just the word itself often gets a, a bit of a, a bad rap, I think these, quite frankly, are just people that are pushing us towards decisions that we should already be making as businesses because it actually makes more sense from a cost-benefit analysis perspective for sure. And the second thing is, um, you know, absolutely right with what Alex said in terms of we have to be addressing this now because eventually there is a point of no return and no matter how much money we have to throw at this problem, um, there will be irreversible impacts, right? So uh, addressing this now is really, really important and one of the biggest waves of investment that we saw during COVID, right? And whether you were were smiling or shaking your head at it uh, with respect to where investor capital was going, you know, with meme stocks and with a whole bunch of these things is that younger generation and if anything has been proven. It's been proven the fact that 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 segment of the market is driving capital flows in and out of areas. And if they are pushing towards more environmentally conscious purchase choices, um, you know, clothing, food sustainability, you want to make sure that as a business, you're you're capturing that audience and, and approaching it the right way. So I think all of this is going in the right direction at the same time.
0: It, it, is it? Is it though? Oliver, because uh, the amount of times I, g- I get this wonderful phrase used on, on YouTube, go, you go woke, you go broke. How's Corora doing?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, would say it's, I wouldn't say it's woke. I'd say it's the harsh reality of an entire island nation being on fire for, for three months. I don't think you need any stronger examples than what we're seeing in terms of climate patterns um, around the world. Um, I think, you know, if you, if you, if you genuinely do look at, at the hard data, um, the reality is the world is changing before our very eyes. Um, so uh, you can have the incumbents um, that are just, you know, quite frankly, disturbed that their, their way of life might be a little bit different moving. Forward, and then you have the next generation that's coming up, uh, realizing that they do want to have a, a planet to live on, with you know, in the same sort of comfort level that their the previous generation did. So I have absolutely no issue with that whatsoever. But I also don't think this is an either or. Kind of reiterate the same point, right? These technologies are there that allow us to make decisions that are going to make these businesses more profitable at the same time. We have ESG capital flows that are leading towards this sector. So if you want to get in front of the wave, like Catherine's talking about, and quite frankly, like we've done at Aurora, you also get to get excellent share price returns at the same time. Um, so a lot of these things are symbiotic. They don't have to be either or. We're now at this place where you know, an investment in a, in a green focused company is actually going to make you more money than an investment in, in, in alternative companies over the course of time. So it's a great place to be, um, and I don't think we have to be as contentious about all this stuff anymore.
0: And Catherine, what do, what do you think? You, I know that so you've well, maybe you've all got the, this eco logo certification because you know, I know you're all in, in Toronto, but obviously maybe Oliver being down in Australia with the projects, you haven't. But that those sorts of certification, uh, you know, um, programs or. Well, maybe not regulation just yet, but you know compliance, etc. I don't know whether that's internal, or external compliance. Well, all of this sort of monitoring and oversight that's going to come in here. Clearly, you've got a view as to you know the value of that, whether it's going to cost you um, you know more money to do that, and whether that's valuable to you or, or your shareholders is, is is one thing. But what, what would you say to the um, the group that Oliver has just described, which is you have come across this next generation coming through? They've got certain expectations and demands. Of, you know, how they, where, how they want to live, where they want to live, you know, an environment uh, that they, they bring their own children up in. It, it's, it can't, mining is an important part of that. Everything that people use every day, the clothes on your back, the the computer you're watching this through, or listening to this through, it needs mining. So, and I come back to an early point with regards to activism is, does mining have to significantly up its game to win that or that younger audience um, over? I mean, well, what do you what do you reckon, Catherine? Are, are you doing enough, or do you think that the fact you're regulated kind of covers your back, and you know that that that's good enough?
1: I, I think we can always do more. Um, I, I think one issue the mining industry has perhaps is is that we are doing quite a bit, um, but sometimes we don't communicate it that well. So you mentioned the eco logo, um, for example, um, in Quebec, it's a certification um, regarding your sustainable practices. So we, we were the first company to obtain it in Quebec. It's, it's focused on ex, exploration and development stage companies. Um, the nice thing about it is it, it was manageable. We have support from the government of Quebec and um, the explorers association. Um, what it helped us with was, learning how to package what we were already doing better, to communicate it better, to to assure our stakeholders um, that there was a third party oversight of what we were doing um, and and to sort of organize our thoughts so we could think ahead. Okay, what what do we need to start thinking about now? We need to put in place a couple of years from now. But in fact, as we went through the process, we, we did find we were doing a lot of it already. It just hadn't really occurred to, to us how to appropriately communicate that to people. So, so now we're doing that better, I think. Um, so there's always room for improvement, I, I think. And, and we're, we're sort of fortunate at Troilus because the mine did operate in the past, now we're restarting it. We sort of have a bit of a do-over. So it's really interesting actually, as we, we talk with, for example, our First Nations partners, a lot of them worked at the mine in the past. They can give us really valuable insights about what worked and what didn't work in the past. And, and that helps us create a better project going forward. So all of these things help everybody and, and will make um, a more efficient, more productive project once it's up and running again.
0: Okay, okay. No, that's interesting. We'd love to um, just, investigate the eco logo a bit more. Again, re, re, helping a company kind of reframe or tell the narrative better is one thing, but pushing it to be better, I guess that would be really interesting. Um, and certainly you know, as part of the narrative to this younger audience coming through, they need to believe. That mining is upping its game, that it is trying to be better to, you know, produce the things which we, we, unfortunately, all of us can't do without, it seems these, these days. Um, Alex, I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with the, 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 the final word. I mean, what, in terms of the carbon neutrality, you know, in your case, you know, carbon credit or carbon offset credits. Um, is that going to be the way that companies get a nice cheap win?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'd say yes, but not uh, cheap. I think cheap kind of takes away from the point. I just want to touch base on a few points that Oliver made, some excellent points. You know, Matt, we're talking about the next generation. We also have to think about the current generation and the previous one. Many people forget about this, but 40 years ago, we went through the same thing. In the mid 80s, uh, we had a climate crisis and that was the depletion of the ozone layer. It's not really an issue now because it was dealt with 40 years ago. So in the mid 80s, We were generating an abundance of CFCs, they're chlorofluorocarbons. Um, You found them everywhere, refrigerators, air conditioning units, aerosols, and they were destroying the ozone layer. In 1987, there was a Montreal Protocol, you know, fast forward many years, we've got the Paris Protocol now, the Paris Agreement. But back then with this protocol, the planet came together to ban these chlorofluorocarbons and the depletion of the ozone layer ceased. And now it's actually uh, re- regenerating itself, it's rebuilding itself. So, this was something that we've already done. We're just going to have to do it again for a different problem. Another point I'd want to make too is the, uh, the the comment that both Catherine and, and Oliver made on both happening together, both types of projects. I think that the, the good analogy I like to use here is the homeowner's worst nightmare, which is an overflowing bathtub. So, imagine this bathtub that's overflowing. You got water that's coming over the edge of the tap that's on. Well, you need a sponge or a towel to remove the excess water or the excess carbon. These are the carbon removal projects that get all the water off the edge. You need the projects that turn off the tap, which avoid the emission of carbon in the first place. But at the end of the day, you still have a bathtub that's full of water. And that's where you get more sponges, more carbon removal, more nature-based projects to actually get that water out. So even in a world where We are fully transitioned to carbon neutrality or net zero or whatever frame we want to use through electrification, through renewable, through biofuels. We still have to deal with all this excess carbon that we have in our atmosphere. Over the last 800,000 years, we've got record carbon levels. We're we're north of 400 parts per million, which is quite, quite concentrated. So there's a lot to do going forward, having companies work both on a carbon credit, carbon offset, carbon origination program, like the companies on this panel, like Agnico Eagle, That's excellent. And that's what you want to do. And you want to do that going forward. indefinitely. you also want to transition at the same time. So what you need to see is both happening. And everybody on this panel is saying the same thing. And it's good to see that that alignment, because that's what the sector is doing. And that's where the sector has to go going forward. So exciting times, you know, we all have a very busy 30 years ahead of us.
0: So you, you guys might. I don't think I'll make it that far. Um, <laughs> thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us today. That was, that was a really great discussion. Let that, thank you for allowing me to throw some, you know, dumb questions at you, which just get asked a lot um, and perhaps need dealing with. And you know, and it's, it's good for us to sort of understand the way that you view the path forward and you know why that's good for everyone. Um, so, look, folks, uh, people listening and uh, watching this, please go have a look at uh, Troyus Gold Green Star royalties and corona resources, some of the companies I think are doing this the right way.